The most effective way to deal with insulin resistance is with your fork. But I can tell you, since I went through conventional medical training, we're not taught how to do that. So even though it's the most effective way to reverse prediabetes, the most effective way to help you with insulin resistance, the most effective way to deal with type 2 diabetes, we're not taught how to counsel people about that. So there's a real mismatch here, a gap that exists in Western medicine. And so that leads to us as women, as CEOs of our families, as caretakers to say, okay, my doctor's kind of failing me here. Let me take this on myself. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. On October 4th, 2014, on my wedding day, I put my size zero wedding dress on at the age of 35 to go and get married. And let me tell you, I worked my booty off to get into that dress. Now, little did I know, I was already showing early signs of Hajimoto's thyroiditis disease, an autoimmune disease that affects your thyroid, which is basically your metabolic gas pedal. That is why it was so much harder to get down into that size that I wanted to for my big day. I literally willed my way into that dress like so many women do on their wedding day. Now, I was in the gym with a trainer three days a week and working out on my own the other four days a week, sometimes twice in a day. Suffice it to say, I was in beast mode to get into that dress. Now, full disclaimer, I weighed 110 pounds on my wedding day, and less than six months later, in the spring of 2015, I was up to 125 pounds on my five foot two frame. And I wouldn't see the scale hit 125 pounds again until 2019. I hovered between 128 and 140 for the next four years, the heaviest I'd ever been in my life. Now, I share this with you because I want you to know that I know the struggle all too well. During those years, in my mid to late 30s, my metabolism was broken, and no amount of working out or eating less was going to fix it. I felt like a broken record trying similar diets and exercise programs and getting the same lackluster results. I felt like many other women who struggle with stubborn weight gain due to hormone issues and metabolic issues. I thought maybe this is how it's just going to be for me moving forward. Maybe it's my genes. I saw it happen with my mom, my grandma, a lot of the women in my family. I just figured, well, I guess it's time for it to happen to me. It was definitely my hormones. For all of us, it's our hormones and our metabolism, which, no surprise, our metabolism is dictated by our hormones. Now, in today's interview, which I am so excited about, we're going to dive into which hormones play a critical role on how our metabolism functions. Although I know, I know, I do talk about these hormones a lot inside of a lot of other episodes on the show. Now, for the past two years, I've been researching the connection between our hormones and metabolism. I have been wanting to understand why we become so insulin resistant starting around 35 years old. And no surprise, I am not the only one who wants to know this. There have been a lot of other practitioners who are like, what is going on with all of us women? So over the last year, I know I've released many episodes on metabolic health, insulin resistance, blood sugar issues, and how to address stubborn weight gain. So when I saw that Dr. Sarah Godfrey's fifth book, 
called Food, Hormones, and Women was going to address this very subject, I was beyond elated. I was so excited. By the way, the book is actually out right now, and it was an instant New York Times bestseller. It's actually still on the New York Times bestsellers list because this is a breakthrough book, and we're going to be getting to it today. Now, Dr. Sarah Godfrey has dealt with similar metabolic issues, and she's going to share her journey today on the show, and it inspired her to dig into the research and even run her own research studies. And what she discovered has unlocked our ability to fix our metabolism and lose the stubborn fat for good. Now, she and I believe in precision medicine, which is what looking at real-time stats every single day to see where you're at metabolically. Whether you're measuring ketones or blood sugar, glucose, or both, you can get a great sense of what is happening to your metabolism every single day and then make pivots and tweaks to get yourself into that optimal range. Now, she had discovered that when you combine a revised keto protocol that's designed for women with gentle detoxification and intermittent fasting, we can unlock the code to a high-burning metabolism. And no surprise, this is what I had discovered as well. So we're going to be nerding out on the nitty-gritty about all of this in today's interview. And before I bring on this revolutionary doctor in the field of women's hormone health, I want to quickly sing her praises. Sarah Gottfried is a board-certified physician who graduated from Harvard and MIT. She practices evidence-based integration, precision, and functional medicine. She's a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Thomas Jefferson University, director of precision medicine at Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. She has three, now four, New York Times bestselling books, including The Hormone Cure, The Hormone Reset Diet, and Younger. And her newest book, as I mentioned before, is called Women, Food, and Hormones. Learn more at sarahgodfriedmd.com. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. How are you doing today? I'm terrific. I'm with you. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to be here as well. We are going to be talking about metabolic flexibility. We're going to be talking about the truth around why we are having such struggles around stubborn weight. And also, we are going to unlock the truth about ketosis and what we can do using keto because there's been so much controversy around that. And I feel like you have finally figured it out, how to make it work for us as women. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, this was born of my own struggle with keto and just realizing that classic keto doesn't work for so many of us. And so this book was really about, you know, how do we address it? How do we adapt keto? How do we create that metabolic health that so many of us are seeking? Hmm. And that's what I want to speak into is exactly how can we adapt that to work with our hormones, not work against our hormones. And I think that's what women are hitting the wall up against is that if it's classic keto, we end up kind of disrupting some of those more critical hormones. I know we're going to get into those big players in a little bit. So as I was talking to you about, I've read all the books and I was curious I'm not going to lie. I was the most excited about this one. When I when I heard what it was about, I was like, oh my goodness. She's, I know she's been doing the research. I know she's cracking the code. What was the inspiration for Women, Food, and Hormones? The inspiration was that I developed prediabetes. And I think that's so important to realize because so many women think about weight loss. They think about, you know, maybe they have a baby and they just struggle with losing weight afterwards. That was my story. And they don't realize that 
what's really important is to focus on metabolic health. So I went on keto to address my prediabetes about five years ago. I did it with my husband and he lost 20 pounds. I lost nothing. And that's what just got me on this path because I realized that so many women are going through this experience. You know, some women do well on keto, but I would say I, I saw all of a sudden about five, six years ago, all of these keto refugees in my practice, you know, women who went on keto, maybe with a male coworker or just saw that people were getting these benefits from a ketogenic diet and they weren't. So I wanted to understand what are some of those sex differences? What are some of those gender differences that lead to hormone disruption in many of us as women when we go on keto? And then what are the workarounds? How can we fix it? Absolutely. And I think that's exactly what you've uncovered, not only with the, the ketogenic properties, but also with intermittent fasting, the circadian fasting, and then also looking at oh, the detoxification. That was <laughs> what I was so excited about. I'm getting way ahead of myself. I want to I speak into kind of what you had seen across the board, not only for the last five years, but probably for many, many decades. And I know that's what I see every single day as well. The number one concern for my women is the stubborn weight gain that tends to happen at 35 years old, all of a sudden, those holiday pounds, they don't come off. You getting on that Peloton ride twice a day, it's not working, right? And some, and in some instances, we're actually seeing diminishing returns for all of that. We start to see more weight come on the scale. I have been there. I know that journey all too I've well. I've been there too. Yeah. Yeah, sister. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about what that is. So I feel like you, you have a video in my house because that was my experience from five years ago until about three years ago. So it took me a couple of failures with keto before I finally got it right. The first time, what I realized in retrospect was that I was struggling with eating too many calories for me and I was eating the wrong type of fat. So hopefully we'll get into the details of this. And then the second time that I did it, I restricted carbs too much. Women need carbs. We need it for making our hormones. We need fat as the backbone of so many of the hormones that we make. And so that was you know, what I was struggling with. But going back even further to address your question, I agree with you. I would say in 95% of the patient intakes that I receive, I see both men and women. What I see among the women is the struggle with weight loss. And it seems to be that after 35, your metabolic hormones change in such a way that the old tricks, the old techniques just don't work anymore. So a lot of people try calorie restriction. You know, I think we've been taught eat less, exercise more. Turns out that's not necessarily true. Your calories matter, but your hormones matter more. And I know I, I'm like speaking to the choir here because you, you know this and what happens, especially at 35, is that women start to notice that insulin is changing. So they may notice that their blood sugar is higher when they go for that annual visit with their doctor. If they're getting a fasting glucose or maybe a hemoglobin A1C, it's starting to climb. They notice that if they get a fasting insulin measured, their insulin might be rising. I like to see it around five to seven. Most of my patients are above that. They start to notice that testosterone is declining. And it's that, you know, testosterone is that yummy hormone that we think of as a male hormone. But the truth is, 
it is the most abundant hormone that women have. It's responsible for confidence and agency and risk-taking. Even though we think of it as a male hormone, women are exquisitely sensitive to it. So yes, we have 10 to 20 times less than men. But if you're someone like me, who I'm just going to get a little quieter here. When I was in my 30s, I had two kids. I was working in McMedicine. I was seeing 30 to 40 patients a day. And I was stressed. I was Mm -hmm. so stressed. And I went to my doctor. I couldn't lose weight after either of my babies. And I kind of laid out, you know, my list of woes. And he was just like, well, you got to exercise more and eat less. And why don't you take an antidepressant? And how about a birth control pill? Sounds about right to me. Right. And I, I just realized, oh my gosh, that's where, this is where it's all going wrong. And millions of women are being told this very same thing. And it's, it's not the right advice. So 35 to 40 is where things start to change. Another thing that happens for women in their forties is that estrogen begins to decline in the second half of perimenopause. I know you know this. And estrogen is an appetite suppressant. It's got 400 jobs in the body. And when your appetite starts to climb in perimenopause, you might be eating more. You might be craving more carbohydrates, especially if you're stressed and that cortisol is high and it's driving you to eat sugar, you know, to feel like sugar is soothing. It raises serotonin. So we sometimes get into that addictive loop. The other thing that changes is growth hormone. And A lot of folks don't realize that women make more growth hormone until we go through perimenopause and menopause, and then it declines precipitously. And it can lead to more belly fat. It can lead to problems with your glucose. So I know this is somewhat complicated, but we want to be eating in a way that addresses these hormones. And I, you know, I love your work so much because you talk about how food regulates your hormones. And every day we get to make these choices to either balance our hormones or to make them out of whack and not work for us and lead to more belly fat, more fat gain. Some of these things that most of us don't want, but what I want women to especially hear is that I don't want women to focus on getting thinner or to be excessively obedient. The focus, I think, should be on metabolic health. Like, how do we get that metabolism, the biochemical reactions in the body that drive, you know, it's the engine behind our mission. How do we empower women to make those choices so that the metabolism is on point and it's allowing us to make all these changes in the world that we want to manifest? Hmm. Amen to that. That is what I'm talking about is literally my mission. We are definitely soul sisters on that mission. And you speak into, you know, kind of what was working for us in our 20s. And I'll be honest with you, I don't necessarily know if it was really working for us in our 20s either. But let's just say we got away with it in our 20s. We could, we could, we could binge on the alcohol and somehow rebound the next day. And I do want to touch upon alcohol as well, because you and I both feel very, very passionate about that. But then, you know, as our 
body starts to change and pivot. And we maybe we didn't have that metabolic flexibility because we never knew that we needed to have that level of metabolic flexibility. We, we start to lose declining testosterone, declining estrogen, our, our stress resilience hormone, progesterone, she's waving us goodbye from the distance, right? She's <laughs> and, then, and then we start to see the estrogen, probably the, kind of the last ditch hope of maintaining some insulin sensitivity. And then it feels like the wheels do fall off. And I feel like a lot of that foundation was that we didn't we didn't pivot and create that metabolic flexibility. So then when our hormones began to shift too, it just it all just kind of just falls apart. It feels like it does. And so would you, you know, I want to talk about metabolic flexibility and I wanted to see kind of where where you kind of gauge the importance of that for us, especially as we pivot into our 30s, 40s, and beyond. I love how you frame it as a pivot because the truth is, this is a choice. You can either go down that path of your hormones not working for you. You know, the insulin rising, the growth hormone dropping, testosterone dropping, progesterone, estrogen dropping, and deal with the consequences. What mainstream medicine does is it treats those symptoms. So it masks the symptoms with Xanax, with antidepressant, with the birth control pill, instead of going to the root cause. So as you said, metabolic flexibility is really the name of the game. And we're designed, we're designed genetically, you know, from thousands and thousands of years ago to be able to flip the switch back and forth between burning carbs and burning fat depending on the type of fuel that's available. So we're designed to do this. What happens for many of us, and I'm totally guilty of this myself, I was that woman in the 20s that you were describing who would binge on alcohol occasionally and I would get away with it. I would binge on carbs. I especially loved chocolate chip cookies and you know croissants, things like that. And what was happening for me was that I was getting stuck in burning those carbs. So instead of toggling my switch back and forth between burning fat and burning carbs or glucose, I was stuck in that position of just burning carbs because that's mostly what I ate. I was in my 20s through my medical training, you know, I was in medical school, then 4 years of residency and then in practice and most of the time I was at hospital cafeterias where carbs are kind of the name of the game. So I really struggled with metabolic flexibility and I realized, you know, when I saw that doctor in my thirties and he wrote on his whiteboard, exercise more plus eat less equals thinner Sarah. I left his office and I went to the lab and I scienced myself, which I think a lot of us do, especially clinicians who find that Western medicine is failing them. And I realized I ran a panel of hormones. And I saw, oh my gosh, my cortisol is three times what it should be. My insulin was super high. It was in the twenties, my fasting insulin, my glucose was about 105. So it was in the pre-diabetes range. And I'm sharing this with you, not because I want you to know my story necessarily, but because I see this all the time in my practice, right? I sh I'm sure you do too. And I want women to know, I want men to know this too. What is your fasting glucose? Like what's happening when you eat a sweet potato or an apple or walnuts? 
you know, what is providing that metabolic flexibility that we need as the engine behind our mission? Mm, so powerful. I want to pivot just a little bit. We're talking about pivoting hormones. I would love to pivot. You know, I think a lot of us, we do that annual check. We maybe, maybe we get the hemoglobin A1C. We usually got to ask for it. Um, but at the very least, we'll get the fasting blood glucose, right? And, you know, that's a lot of the indicator that we're going to get for the year. I want to have you speak into, because I know that you are on the medical board for Levels Health, and I would love for you to speak into just what was your experience starting to wear a continuous glucose monitor? Mine, I, I have a little, I have sleeves on right now, so you can't, yeah. maybe I can pull mine up and show there's you. There mine. it is. Yeah. yeah there's, there's our monitors. Yes. I'm a research advisor for Levels, so I always like to be really transparent about that because I have a research grant. That's to Thomas Jefferson University, and I run a research team looking at some of the earliest biomarkers or indicators of prediabetes. So what we know is that what happens for so many of us, what happened for me in my 30s, is that there's kind of normal glucose metabolism, and that's where your fasting glucose is ideally around 65 to 85. Now, mainstream medicine says that normal glucose is 70 to 99, but that is not optimal. I don't want to be average. I want to be optimal. And I want that for our listeners and viewers to really think about, okay, what's normal in terms of mainstream medicine versus what's optimal. So once your glucose starts to rise above 85, your fasting glucose, once it gets to 90, 95, 99, 105 like me, what that means is that your insulin is working harder and harder and harder to try to drive glucose inside cells. In fact, we know that glucose changes are relatively late in this process. So the disease process goes from normal glucose function to pre-disease, which is what pre-diabetes is, to disease such as type 2 diabetes. And what we want to do, I practice precision medicine, we want to intervene as early as possible in that process. So you asked about levels, you asked about my work as a research advisor. What we're doing is we're looking at, we're doing a systematic review and meta-analysis of these early biomarkers. So before someone gets diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, as an example, there's usually a 13-year period where insulin is changing. So not necessarily fasting insulin. What changes first is what's called postprandial insulin. So that's your insulin level an hour or two hours after a meal. So that's what we're looking at in this research grant. We're looking at what else can predict these changes that occur a decade or longer before you end up with a fasting glucose that's elevated, adiponectin, measures of inflammation like high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. There's some genes that can predict you having a problem with glucose and insulin. In fact, there's dozens and dozens, like hundreds of them. There's also gene-gene interactions. There's adiponectin, another hormone that is really important in terms of glucose metabolism. So my work with Levels is really looking at prediabetes and how do we help people as early as possible and as effectively as possible? Not with the latest pharmaceutical, although sometimes that's called for, 
but starting first with food. Yes, absolutely. How do we use food and lifestyle and sleep and, you know, stress, the way that you exercise, the way that you dispose of glucose, how do we affect those things first to help people be as metabolically flexible as possible? Hmm. I love that because that's such a great segue in. And I just want to speak into following you on Instagram and seeing your metabolic scores, 99, 98, 95. I'm like, look at this woman totally practicing what she preaches. So I just wanted to just celebrate you. Every time I see a score, I see your 90%, 99% score. I'm just like, woo, woo. <laughs> well, I so appreciate that. But also, let me just say that you know, I've been going through this book launch for women, food and hormones. And I had a lot of days of flying to New York and taking a red eye and then getting up at three o'clock in the morning to be on the today show. And my metabolic score was not 99 on those days because every time I'm on TV, I get excited. I don't feel stressed, but my glucose goes up because I know that my cortisol is higher when I take a red eye and I don't sleep in my own bed and get two hours of deep sleep and, you know, eight hours of total sleep, my, my insulin is worse the next day. So I just want to cast a wide net that you got to start somewhere. And when I first started with continuous glucose monitoring about three years ago, my scores were not so good. And I, you know, there's a period of discovery. What's so great about continuous glucose monitoring. It's one of many wearables that I use in precision medicine is that it allows you to personalize the way that you eat. You know, I was surprised to find that so many foods that we think of as healthy, like apples and sweet potatoes and even chickpeas were spiking my glucose up to diabetic levels. Grapes. Grapes. Oh, grapes. It's no, no. (laughs) Even sweet potatoes, these things that you don't think about. Yeah. It's important to realize that you know, the way that you respond, Maritza, to to food is different from the way that I respond. It's dependent on so many different factors from stress and exercise hormones to the microbiome. And, you know, do you have too many of those Homer Simpson type of bacteria that are just going to make you spike? Do you have not enough of the acromansia that help you with glucose metabolism and also help you with leaky gut, with maintenance of the gut lining? And so there's all this individual response, this bio-individuality that we want to tap into because ultimately the goal is how do we personalize the best diet for you? And I'm really food agnostic about that. You know, I've got cases in my book who are 100% plant-based and that's actually one of the most proven diets to help with glucose and help with insulin, no processed food, 100% plant-based. But this is where personalization becomes important because I have a history of an eating disorder. And so when I go 100% plant-based, I actually have increased hunger and it, it causes problems for me. I end up eating too much. And so keto is a much better fit for me, at least the clean keto version that I have in the book, because it allows me to produce those ketones from burning fat and that keeps me satisfied. So that's the difference. I would say those two diets are really the most proven to be 100% plant-based or to follow a clean ketogenic diet. I love keto because of the ketones, what it does for mental acuity, what it does for appetite suppression. And then you know, ketones are a signaling molecule 
that help you with inflammation. It can help you with hormones if you do it right. But I just think it's important to say that, you know, whether you're vegan or you're a carnivore or an omnivore, there's a way for us to personalize food so that it can regulate your hormones. Hmm. I I 100% agree with you in terms of personalized medicine. Every single one of us is different. Yes, grapes may have a profound impact on many of us, but it's important to know your individual. And I think the wearables really allow for that. A lot of the foods that you mentioned, I have a, a huge predisposition in my family for type 2 diabetes. My sister's pre-diabetic. My, I have uncles and family members across the board. And so it's just something that was on my radar from a very early age to kind of watch out for. But not everyone that's a situation for. And so, you know, it just really depends on what's going on with you as an individual. As you mentioned, kind of how we can look at and potentially reverse that direction of insulin resistance and maybe even pre-diabetes, which we're talking about millions and millions of people in this country that are suffering with. I want to talk about food, food being that first way in which that we can regain power, that we can we, we can power our bodies to actually move into metabolic flexibility. So I, you know, you spoke a little bit into keto and, and one plant-based and clean keto. Can we talk more specifically about what does it mean to do clean keto? And I know that a big, big aha moment for you was that, you know, detoxification may need to be a big part of this, of this protocol and program for each and every one of us. Detoxification was really the missing piece for me throughout my failed experiments with keto. And what I realized is that women especially need detoxification. And what I noticed with my NBA players that are all male versus my female patients is that Overall, in my opinion, women have more detox issues than men do. So setting up the detox pathways, making sure that they're open, they're functioning, they're not sluggish before you go on a ketogenic diet, I think is essential. So what does that mean? It means that you're pooping every single day and not just like a little bit, but you feel like you are completely evacuating. You have that feeling of, ah, you know, like the angels are singing, when you finish, I want that every morning for my patients. If your transit time is slower, if you're constipated, what I find is that keto doesn't work as well because it's such an important part of detoxification, especially when it comes to estrogen balance. So you've got to get fiber. We need those prebiotic fibers that help with the benevolent bacteria in the gut, especially the ones that are involved in estrogen detoxification. We want to make sure that you're getting specific vegetables such as the cruciferous vegetables, the broccoli, the broccoli sprouts, which also help with detox, the cauliflower, the cabbage, the Brussels sprouts. We want the allium vegetables that help you make glutathione, onion, garlic, leeks, so important for mopping up the toxins. And then the methylating vegetables like the dark green leafies. And what I found, especially when I was going through this process was that I had estrogen dominance. I was in that first part of perimenopause and I really needed to crank up the dose of my vegetables. And so instead of going on keto and, you know, like bringing your total carbs down to 10 to 20 grams per day, I think it's important to use net carbs. And so what I was always taught was that you can't use net carbs and get into keto 
So we just proved that. <laughs> we just, you know, what we found is that if you focus on net carbs, and for women, I recommend starting with less than 20 to 25 net carbs per day. If you do that and you really get those non-starchy vegetables to feed the microbiome, to fuel your DNA, that's really a strategy that sets you up for success with keto. So that's the first part. The second part is nutritional ketosis. That's the second pillar. And what I advise for women especially to do is to make sure that that, that fat, the 60 to 70% of your calories per day from fat are mostly plant-based. So one of the things I found in myself as well as in a lot of my patients is that I have a particular gene variant that is associated with worse insulin, insulin resistance when I eat too much saturated fat. So the first time I went on keto and I was eating bacon and butter and, you know, like having a party, what I found was that part of the reason why it wasn't working was calories and the amount of fat I was eating, but it was also the type of fat. So more plant-based fat, the avocados, the olives, the olive oil, the avocado oil, nuts and seeds, those really rich sources of plant-based oil that's so good for us. That's a really important part. And then the third pillar is intermittent fasting. I know we've heard so much about intermittent fasting. It's almost like a genetic loophole. It allows you to get into deeper ketosis, but also eat more carbohydrates. So when you layer that on, not in a way that is overly restrictive or overly stressful, but more like a 14-hour overnight circadian fast, that really allows you especially to eat more carbs in the morning when you're more insulin sensitive, right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I know so often people think skip morning entirely, but your body is more, is is going to be in a more thermogenic state because we have the day in front of us. Just that's how we are built. And so carbs in the morning, I mean, again, we're talking about that limited amount of carbs and those really healthy plant-based carbs, but you know, it's it, your salad maybe a blueberry or two, or maybe your keto bread and your mashed avocado. That sounds amazing. That's in the morning. That's in the morning. And you know, one of the things I do is I exercise every morning and I, I will eat my carbs right after I exercise. So that's a great time to repair your muscles. It's a great time to get carbs together with some protein. And so we've got to be thinking about the timing. You know, what so many people do with intermittent fasting and with keto is that they restrict during the day. Maybe they start eating at 12 or they have a big meal at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. They go to bed at 10. And it's really hard on your digestion. What we know is that melatonin starts to rise a couple of hours before you go to bed. When melatonin rises, that makes you more insulin resistant. And so that's when the carbs can sometimes get stored as belly fat. Immediately or on your booty, you know, (laughs) depending on how you store fat. (laughs) Yes. And that changes. So, you know, for so many of us after 40 who are going through perimenopause, the distribution of fat changes as insulin and estrogen change. And it leads to less fat getting stored at your booty, less fat getting stored at your breast and your hips, more fat stored at your belly where it's not just an issue of vanity. 
it's actually metabolically working against you. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm so glad you're speaking into this. I, you know, with, I was just speaking on to, you know, measuring my, my blood glucose and my metabolic score. I will go into the evening at a 98%. And if I am not super, super clean about dinner, keeping it more on the keto side, I, I girl, my, my, it'll drop to like an 82, you know? And, and so for me, and I know everyone's a little bit different, but I, you know, come 5 PM, I become much more insulin resistant. And so we try to eat much earlier. I always, and I would love for you to speak into kind of that, that time between that last meal and going to bed, because we really want to support the brain's ability to clean up shop as well. And so these are all the things that I take into consideration and, and I, I, I educate about is that, you know, we just naturally, understandably so due to circadian rhythms, we're more insulin resistant at night. And We also want to make sure that our brain and our body can do natural detoxification processing at night as if there's a long enough time between our last meal and when we go go to bed. I think all these things are super critical and important. But I think where we sometimes get insulin or sorry, intermittent fasting wrong is that you know we have these big meals at lunch and at dinner. And maybe we have it with the wine and we have that little tiny dessert and your body doesn't know what to do with it except to store it. And we, we, we end up not seeing the results we're looking for. Well, you're speaking to something so important, which is to work with the innate intelligence of the body, because we know that since we get more insulin resistant at night, we know that you've got to eat in a way that fits with the rhythms of the body. And our bodies were designed to have this period of metabolic rest where you stop eating, you know, for most people, for most of our ancestors' lives, that would be eating dinner before the sun goes down. So as you described, eating at five, I find that that makes a big difference in terms of my metabolic score, but you can also be fooled. You know, there's some people who will have a couple servings of vodka at dinner and that helps to stabilize their glucose. That's not actually what we're talking about, right? (laughs) No, that is not a hack to blunt the blood sugar response. (laughs) No, I mean, that the alcohol is like a bully. It just goes to the front of the line with the liver and, you know, cuts in line. And basically your liver is then busy with the alcohol for the next 24 hours. It reduces fat burning for 24 hours. So if you're having a glass of wine every night or your favorite cocktail every night, you're basically shutting off fat burning by about 70%. You said something else that I think is really key. And that is so much of detoxification happens when you're sleeping. There's this lymphatic system in the brain that is like a shampoo that gets the junk out of your brain. And the more that you can set yourself up for the best night's sleep, the better off you'll be. I mean, sleep is as close to a panacea as we have. And what I advise my patients is to just assume that you got to be in bed by 10. I think that works for most people. There's some night owls who, you know, can't do it that way, but that's what I advise. And that doesn't mean that you like, you know, go to your bedroom at 10. It means that you have a ritual around a curfew on your screens. You have a ritual in the morning of morning light so that you can get peak melatonin. That's between usually 8 and 10 a.m. You have a way of creating a sanctuary in your room so that you don't have light that's artificial at night. 
And so setting yourself up for a great night's sleep is also a key part of this detoxification. You said one other thing you were talking about, you know, you've got this beautiful baby. And I I just want to speak to that for a moment because we're realizing, I do a lot of cardiometabolic care in my practice, and we're realizing that women especially have all of these kind of non-traditional risk factors for cardiometabolic disease. And one of them is pregnancy. So pregnancy is a very important stress test to see how your vessels respond, to see how your heart responds. You know, the cardiac output increases dramatically during pregnancy by about 50%. And some people don't do so well with that stress test. So in my own experience, what I found was that my glucose test, so we usually do a glucose test around 27 to 28 weeks because pregnancy can induce insulin resistance. My glucose test was right at the borderline. So my cutoff when I was having kids, my kids are now teenagers, was 135. And my score was 134. So this was a sign back when I was 31 years old that I was having problems with glucose and insulin. And I didn't even notice it. And all my doctor said was, don't drink juice. Yeah. Don't drink juice. You're fine. You know, we don't have to do the next level of testing here. You know, just decrease a couple of these things. That's it. There's no like, oh, we should be on the lookout for this. Well, that and the most effective way to deal with insulin resistance is with your fork. Yes. But I can tell you, since I went through conventional medical training, we're not taught how to do that. So even though it's the most effective way to reverse prediabetes, the most effective way to help you with insulin resistance, the most effective way to deal with type 2 diabetes, we're not taught how to counsel people about that. So there's a real mismatch here, a gap that exists in Western medicine. And so that leads to, I think, us as women, as CEOs of our families, as caretakers to say, okay, my doctor's kind of failing me here. Let me take this on myself. Let me figure out what foods are going to be the best for me in terms of these metabolic hormones like insulin, testosterone, growth hormone, estrogen, progesterone, et cetera. Absolutely. Well, I was thinking, you know, I I had my son at 41 when I was pregnant in my 40s and 41. And th- this was something that had been my, on my radar for quite some time, well before I was priming to get ready to get pregnant. Um, but yeah, it was really fascinating. You know, I, and I, I tell this story a lot on the podcast that my OBGYN who, you know, God bless her heart, she was she was doing the best she could. And, and we we definitely had discussions, a lot of discussions, even looking at thyroid levels, all of it. But she point blank, she was like, you're going to fail. You're going to fail the glucose test. You're you're too old. There's no way you're going to pass Whoa. this. And I thought that was really fascinating that that, she, that she's like, yeah, over 35, like she had these kind of indicators. She's just like, it's just how it's going to be. You, you are going to have just significant amount of insulin resistance. That's just the way it is. And that she kind she knew that, but that we didn't necessarily translate that to our women at that age, you know, who were not pregnant with the potential of gestational diabetes. And I thought I was really fascinated by that. She just point blank, she's like, you're gonna fail this. But I did not. Yeah, I did at all. You did it. Of, of course, course I did, did not. And so I was just really interesting, kind of I just walked away from that thinking to myself, modern medicine has a sense that 
people and women in particularly, we are becoming more insulin resistant, but we're just of the mindset of just wait and see, wait and see, wait and see until we start to see the markers for prediabetes. Then I feel like then it is the calorie restriction recommendation of eat less and get on your bike more. That's kind of, you know, Sarah, go do that, you know, from your doctor. That's what we're given and and not much else around that conversation. Such an important point. You know, this idea of wait and see, wait and see, you know, see what happens with your fasting glucose. Oh, look, it's starting to rise. The great thing about your podcast is that you have this opportunity to educate women so that they are not putting up with that because it's not an effective strategy. You know, back, I feel like I go to so few parties nowadays with the pandemic still occurring, but back when we used to go to parties, I used to ask people, Hey, what's your fasting glucose? That was like my conversation. Opener. I love that. I love <laughs> that you asked that question. It's mm. like a total nerd alert. But, it's so uh, good. <laughs> well, I want people to know because what happens? Are you asking like, me? Mine's 70. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Mine was 75 this morning. So amazing. Yeah. yeah, 70s is the ideal fasting glucose for your cardiometabolic health. And so I want people to know about this. You know, my husband, for instance, on his iPhone, he knows our net worth like minute to minute. Like he's watching the market, he's like watching our retirement accounts. And yet until he met me, he wasn't tracking things like fasting glucose or, you know, what's happening with his A1C. And I think they're equally important. I mean, who cares? Who if cares you've got a bunch care? of money and at 65 or 70, you are struggling with severe brain fog. You're struggling with fatigue, you know, in the morning, not, not just at two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon. You're seeing major predictors for cardiovascular disease and maybe memory loss. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, th- th- those are important. What's the point of having all this money to travel if you don't have the energy to do so? Yeah, I really want people to pay attention to that. And it's, um, you know, it's so interesting to hear the story of your OBGYN, bless her. But there's a way that we get gaslit. So many of us, myself included, go to our doctors and say, listen, I can't lose this weight. And I'm really struggling. Like I'm exercising regularly. I feel like I'm eating a healthy diet. It's just not working can we check my hormones? And often those people are told, well, your hormones vary too much. We don't measure fasting insulin. We don't measure testosterone unless you want to get pregnant, in which case we'll measure all of them. I mean, fertility, we love that, but otherwise we don't have any interest. Well, it's a double standard, isn't it? It's a double standard. And so I think it's important to realize that if you're struggling with your weight, check your hormones, you know, at least do the questionnaires that are in my book that I ask all of my patients that tell me about metabolic hormones, tell me about testosterone, tell me about growth hormone, these other hormones that are so important for your metabolic health. So start there. I want women to feel empowered to realize that if you're struggling with your weight, if you're struggling with your metabolism, this is a real invalid concern. Don't let some doctor dismiss you or say, oh, you're just getting older. It's just how things are. No, like let's figure out how to support you, how to get you the food that really helps you with your hormones, that helps you regulate insulin and all these other hormones that we've been talking about today, because the power really is within your reach. 
Mm, I agree. And I, I think that this is the big message here is that most likely that's what we're going to get. And that's a lot of what has been trained. You know, they just get the, I wouldn't say that your primary care practitioner is a hormone expert. You know, it's just not what they're looking for or even worth, they maybe not even feel like it's worth considering. And so I think a big message here in, in what I think you lay out so beautifully in this book and really all of your books, it's how we can take control how, you know, if we're, if we're the common denominator for our family, for work, for the household, for everything, we should really be that common denominator for our own health journey as well. And I know sometimes it can feel very daunting to think, well, it, it stinks to have to do it myself, you know, and, but you know what, it, it's, it's, there's no one who knows our bodies better than ourselves. And, you know, no one who's going to be able to measure it that way, leveraging precision me precision medicine and looking at that every single day, waking up and checking your blood glucose, looking at your aura ring, looking at where you're keto where, if you're in ketosis or not. I mean, we have a way of measuring all of this every single day and then pivoting based on what we're seeing on the numbers. And so I, I think for me, I love that I get I get to have control over this. I love that I get to measure this. And I think really it's a win-win for us. I think it's a reframe that yes, maybe we, we can't always rely on the primary doctor to look at all of these nuances, but we get to rely on ourselves. And if there's anyone who has the ability to do so and make the pivots, it's women. <laughs> That's absolutely true. You know, I think um it's so essential to not feel disempowered around this. And that's what you're, you're speaking to, you know, don't just assume that your doctor knows best. Don't just assume that your doctor is going to be thinking about your hormones, thinking about your insulin, thinking about all these other metabolic hormones that we've been talking about, because the truth is we don't get enough education about hormones when we go through our training and there's a bias, you know, just as we were describing, there's a bias around taking care of women who struggle with fertility. And that's what, you know, OBGYNs and primary care doctors think about when it comes to hormones. And there's also like a, there's this assumption that dealing with weight or dealing with fat is sort of less interesting than dealing with some of the other what doctors perceive as more serious conditions. And I disagree with that. You know, in some ways, yes, this is somewhat complicated. Yes, it may not be your first choice of what to do with your life, you know, to focus on hormones and what to eat for your hormones. But the truth is, it's so much more complicated to get a diagnosis of prediabetes or to get a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or as happens a lot in my family, type three diabetes, which is Alzheimer's disease. So caring about what happens, especially like from age 35 onward, that's when you're kind of setting the stage for things like Alzheimer's disease in later age. Alzheimer's disease is a disease of middle age. It is a disease from 40 to 65 where things start to change like glucose and insulin, and then leads to this really scary diagnosis many years down the road. So the time to do something about it is not when you're 72 and diagnosed, but it's right now to wrangle that insulin, to wrangle these other hormones that are so essential. 
I 100% agree. I think a lot of us don't realize that it's the we we must have that metabolic flexibility. We've got to have it if we want to keep our brain happy and functioning for many many years to come. That this is the start. You know, I think about when when we think about system wide inflammation, whether it's cardiovascular inflammation or maybe it's PCOS or maybe it's brain fog, which is inflammation of the brain, this is, I feel like so much of this is being driven by by a lack of metabolic flexibility. This is an issue of, of, of a poor metabolic problems that we're having and potentially some gut issues as well. But that's what I'm seeing, you know, and it, it's so easy that we can kind of just brush it aside. Like you said, the gaslighting that's happening as just, oh, just, you know, eat a little bit less, exercise a little bit more, but it, there's just, it, there's so much more at stake that we don't recognize, that we've got to be mindful of. And I think you do a great job of really articulating that, not only in this book, in other books that, you, that you've that you written as well, especially the last book on brain function. You know, like what do we do to avoid that level of inflammation? How do we turn back the tide early in our 30s and 40s so that in our 60s, 70s, and 80s, we're able to actually function? And so I feel like this ties so beautifully into that conversation. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, you know, another thing about metabolic flexibility, I feel like it's one of those terms that not everyone completely understands. And if that's true for you, as you listen to us, that's okay. But as you make choices with food, whether that's to be hundred percent plant-based or to do this ketogenic diet that I've adapted for women, that's in the book, the downstream benefit is that you feel better your energy's better, you sleep better, you got less inflammation from your gut that goes to your brain, less anxiety and depression as a result of that. You fit into the clothes in your closet, like that's another lovely benefit of metabolic flexibility. So I think it's important just to connect those dots to realize that yes, metabolic flexibility is really the focus here, but it also does help women with some of these goals related to body image and you know the the health that powers us forward in terms of the work that we do absolutely i mean yeah we want it's a the first step here is having that health piece right so that we can go and do the work in the world that we were meant to do and you think about when we are doing that big work sarah it's our 40s it's our 50s right this like right when everything is shifting and pivoting we are doing our biggest work right and if we could have that foundation of metabolic flexibility we would just move through these major transitions with so much easing but more easy and grace. And we'd feel so much better moving forward. I know for me, I'm still up with this baby multiple times a night. I've dropped 35 pounds this year, you know, because I've really dialed in that metabolic flexibility. Most of that was pregnancy weight, right? The baby weight. And also I wanted to show up at nine o'clock this morning for this conversation, <laughs> you know, and, and I know it, and what has made the, the biggest difference of all for me just individually is really dialing the food piece, is really dialing the metabolic flexibility and looking at these aspects. I can't change the sleep scenario just yet. It's coming down. People tell me it's going to get better. It's coming down it the pipe. It will get better. Yeah. I promise it will get better. <laughs> but I, I have the ability to manipulate these other these other you know foundational areas in my health and and that's what I'm that's what I'm relying on right now and so as I read your book and it just spoke into all the things that have been working for me this year 
And I just felt like, oh my gosh, thank goodness it's on paper somewhere, you know, that women can go and listen to. So I wanted to just share a little bit of my story and how I just so resonated with this and so resonated with the results that so many other women are getting because it, it's wor- it does work for us. And it, it, it's so necessary right now more than ever. So I want to just say thank you so, so much for writing this and for making it so simple for us to get. And I'll have the link. I'm going to have the link in the show notes to go grab the book to, you know, and make sure I have it in and social media as well. And I wanted to just end really quickly with a quick little quick fire, a couple questions that I would love to ask you if you're all right with that. Sure. Let's start out um, really quickly. What is the one thing you are deeply grateful for right now? Oh, well, I have to say talking to you. You know, I've been following your work for a very long time. I love your books. I feel like we are like soul sisters. And part of my work, especially resolving trauma, some of my early childhood trauma, I was listening to your podcast recently on trauma, is to be so present in the moment. And it almost sounds like a cliche to really focus on that, but to be here with you now and to be listening so carefully to what you say, not working too hard to think about how I'm going to say something in response, but to really be in the light that you shine. I'm just deeply grateful for that. So thank you. Mm, I'm feeling that. Thank you. I'm receiving it and I feel the same way. Thank you so much. Um, What was something you've done that made you feel extremely happy in the last week? I went down to Los Angeles last Thursday. And I was on a a show with another woman who's similar to you in that she's a leader. She's just a powerhouse in health, in entrepreneurship. And she's, she's got a really powerful platform that she's using to help women, especially with confidence, with kind of a radical concept of confidence. And I was so grateful to be able to go down to LA to film in her studio and to be with her. And it's really these moments with other people, you know, that I I'm realizing as I get older that really matter. You know, I think so much about my two daughters. I've got one that's 16, one that's uh, 21. And I think about what am I modeling for them? You know, hopefully I've been modeling eating in a way that regulates your hormones. Hopefully I've been modeling for them a way to deal with perceived stress, a way to resolve trauma. But I I think it's especially important to show them that I'm talking to these other women, we're lifting each other up, we're working to make this world a better place. So that made me just exquisitely happy. And then I got my whole weekend with my family and there's nothing better than that. (laughs) Mm, I love that so much. Ooh, that feels so good. What's one thing about you that surprises people? I'm from Alaska. So um, a lot of folks don't realize that I just love the wilderness. I think that it's such an important part of, you know, we think of body, mind, and spirit, but that leaves out environment. And environment plays such an important role. I fell in love, opened my heart to the wilderness when I lived in Alaska. That will always be internalized. It'll always be a part of me. Even though I live in the Bay Area, I still feel like an Alaska girl, like you could take a girl from Alaska, can't take the Alaska out of the girl. So that's 
That's something surprising. Another surprising thing is psychedelics. We'll have to talk about that at another time. <laughs> yes. Oh, we're you're coming back. You are coming okay. back. Sounds good. That's my next book. So we're we definitely have to talk about it. Yes. What speaking of book, what book or film has recently had a big impact on you and why? Mm. So the book that I'm reading right now is called Consciousness Medicine. And it's about the profound impact of psychedelics, psychedelic medicine, to really help us resolve trauma, to help with treatment-resistant depression, to help with even, you know, not just post-traumatic stress disorder that we think about with folks who've gone through a major event, but also the sub-threshold PTSD that I see regularly in my practice. I think it's one of the most common reasons for hormones to get disrupted. I know you've been talking about this too. So consciousness medicine is something that I'm working on. And I'll say in particular, chapter three is about a holistic model of living, of balanced living, and the role of psychedelics that can help us get there. So that's my favorite book right now. Nice. Love it. I bet it's a part of your research, right? Now. Can you, sure I just is. love that you're doing research for the next book and the launch of this one. It's that's that you are incredible. I love that. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 18 year old self? Measure your hormones. We get stuck in this pattern of outsourcing our power to our clinicians. And I think that should stop. One of the ways that it stops is by assuming ownership of your health, deciding what you want your health for, what powers your health is your hormones. So I would say measure those hormones when you're 18, you're feeling carefree, your thyroid is working, like you're you're ovulating regularly, measure your baseline hormones because then we know what to go back to. When you start to have issues when you're 35 or 45 or 55. Mm, Yes. 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 I was, I was hoping that was the answer. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Um, Sarah, honey, where else would you love for us to plug into? I know the books are everywhere. Books are sold right now. Even in the UK, it's available as well. Where else would you love us to go and check you out? Well, the place where I, I publish my articles is sarahgottfriedmd.com. The place that I hang out the most right now is Instagram. So I would say Instagram at Sarah Gottfried MD is a great place to ask questions and interact and engage with the material. Mm, You've got to follow her on Instagram. Then you'll get to see her stories. You'll get to see her metabolic score. Both good and bad. And, you know, the, the, the content that you share, just to kind of give us the glimpse of inspiration of what's possible, definitely worthwhile so that you can dive deeper into the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marisa. So good to be with you. So is your mind blown? I know mine is. Dr. Sarah Gottfried has been one of my sheroes for a very long time. And I cannot tell you how phenomenal I think her newest book is about boosting metabolic health and uncovering how women can let go of stubborn fat for good. Now, if you are ready to learn more, which I hope you are, I highly recommend that you go and grab her book today. And this is what I love so much about books like this. I know that Dr. Gottfried poured her heart and soul and everything into this book, dug into research for years to write this. 
And the fact that we can get all of this information, the protocols, everything inside of a a book that costs like what, $20, give or take, like you can transform your health with this beautiful, amazing book is just incredible to me. I've always been a massive fan of books. I'm a huge reader and I just love that practitioners like Sarah Gottfried are willing to do the big work to put this type of work into the world. So I will have the the notes, I'll have the book link in the show notes for this episode. And if you want, you can always just go and grab it. You can find it at any book retailer, Women, Food and Hormones by Dr. Sarah Gottfried. I know you're not going to regret getting a copy of it. I want to say thank you so much for listening into the Essentially You podcast. As always, this show is about providing tools to rock your hormones and feel amazing in your body. Now, if there's someone in your life that needs to hear this today, because I bet there is, take a moment, screenshot this episode or go and screenshot the book, send it over to them, or even better, share it on social. I cannot tell you how much I love, love, love to get tagged with these podcast episodes You can tag Dr. Marisa or you can hashtag hormone literacy or hormone CEO. Now, the next episode, again, we're diving into hormones because that is what we do here. I'm going to be sharing 10 surprising signs and symptoms of estrogen dominance and what we can do to address it. I find that most women in our 30s and 40s are dealing with estrogen dominance for a number of reasons. I'm going to get into it in the episode and it tends to lend to a lot of the symptoms that I see every one of us struggling with all the time. And so I'm going to dive into that, explain to you what you can do next. I can't wait for this episode to go live. So until then, have an amazing weekend. 